It's February 2012, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. And before we go on into the theme music, we have a very interesting process to engage in today on the NACOcast. This is my last show as the host of the NACOcast after five years and many hours of eclectic programming about the orchestral world and about classical music. And I'm delighted to introduce, across the desk from me here in the NACOcast studio, the principal tuba with the National Arts Centre Orchestra and a very well-loved and well-known musician throughout Canada, Nicholas Atkinson, your new host for the NAC's NACOcast. Nick, Welcome. Thank you very much, Chris. I now pass the interview baton across the table to you, and for the first time in five years, I will now answer questions. Okay, what do I do next? Okay, well, you see this button here? This button says record, and this button says stop. So whenever you absolutely have no idea what to say next, you push the stop button. Is it red? <laughs> That's exactly it. So, Nick, I, I, what kind of plans have you got for the show? Well, I've listened to a few of yours, and I've been on one, and uh, I think it's a great idea. I think there's a huge scope. And I think that because there are so many interesting people, both in the audience and among our acquaintance, that we can probably come up with some uh, different angles on things. People always expect a certain thing when they listen to a musical show, and perhaps we might come at, come at things from different angles. So that's my main thrust. I also have my own pet things. I remember a few years ago, there was a book of essays that came out by Robertson Davies, and they were called The Enthusiasms of Robertson Davies. And I think I have a few enthusiasms to share with uh, our listeners. You have very eclectic interests intellectually. Well, they say that. People do say that. <laughs> so how, how you have a love of literature, I know that. And in fact, you have advanced degree in literature, if I'm not mistaken. I do. I have an MA in English, and I started a PhD. One of the shows I plan to do down the road, actually, is um, a show about Shakespeare and music because there's a ton of music inspired by the works of Shakespeare. There certainly is. Going back to the 1600s, actually. Really? Yep. What's, what's the first example of I'm trying to think offhand, um, but Purcell certainly wrote some, uh, mm -hmm. some works uh, based on Shakespearean texts. There are a few folk songs from that time, and of course we know all about the operas, Berlioz and so forth. One of the things that I found uh, the most interesting, perhaps the guiding principle in doing these shows for the last five years, has been learning from our NACOCAS audience what really intrigues them. And I think here's the bottom line. This is a very cultured and intensely interested audience, and they want to hear th about things deeply. Mm -hmm. When I was first approached to do this show by the management of the National Arts Centre here in Ottawa, I think their idea was... Uh, that it would be a vehicle for introducing to local audiences information about upcoming National Arts Centre Orchestra programs. And indeed, at the very beginning, for a couple of shows, that is what we did. Mm -hmm. um, but what became apparent to me from the very beginning, first of all, five years ago, there were very few podcasts in the uh, classical milieu. And I think 
if I'm not mistaken, we were the first established orchestra to start a podcast, and of course now most orchestras do. And most orchestras, not just in North America but throughout Europe, have highly developed multimedia concepts and have established very deep websites which allow interaction with their audiences. And of course, these websites have become a very important vehicle for delivery of content um, as the classical music recording industry, as with all the recording industries, is going through such, one might say, catastrophic change, but certainly calamitous change in the sense of the of, of funding models and all that. It's become uh, absolutely de rigueur for orchestras to find ways of delivering content to local as regional and worldwide audiences. So as we saw that trend developing five years ago, we decided that what we would do was include in-depth discussions of, of, of music in a, it, as if we were addressing a university-level music student. That was essentially what happened. And as the numbers have borne out, um, the listenership for the NACOcast uh, has for a number of years been in the top five downloads on iTunes with thousands and thousands of downloads of every show. What, it, what this reflects is a hunger in the audiences around the world for deep content. So I never shied away from the idea of talking about a secondary dominant or the, the meaning of a, of a retransition in, in sonata form or, or whatever content might be challenging to some of the listeners. But ultimately, because our listeners are highly, highly in, in, intelligent, cultured, and interested in, the, in, in knowing more about music and the process of making it, uh, I, I think the higher the common denominator for your shows, the the more people will love you. Well, I agree completely. Um, <clears throat> I remember a few years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was in a pub in England with my uncle, and a friend of his came over, and we were chatting about opera. And his friend, who was a painter, not an artist, but a painter, started talking about, I think it was Rigoletto, and then proceeded to sing several of the arias in Italian. So I know that there's a very strong audience uh, of amateur musicians or people who love music and know a lot about it out there. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to me, and I'm glad that you brought this up, to, to try to reach that sort of audience. There are lots of people out there who know lots of things, who have you know, their hobbies and things. So they know a hell of a lot about it. It's interesting to, to try to reach that kind of an audience rather than just have a sort of a surface gloss over things. I mean, people can read that anywhere. I think one of the recurring themes in many of the conversations that I've had doing this show for the last few years has been the whole idea of the integration of uh, the integration in human communication between the grammar of speech and the expressive grammar of music. And, and that, is, that idea has found fruit in a whole number of different conversations. But certainly content, deep extended content is often replaced by quick snippets of information. I think that our listeners are looking for that deep thread in every show and thread between show where they can begin to understand the commonality in musical communication between the expression and the shaping and the coloring of a musical phrase and its counterpoint in, in a simple paragraph in any language. You keep reading my mind. <laughs> It's funny because when I teach, I, I encourage musicians, student musicians, to describe sounds 
and I always say pick your own adjective because when we describe music it's very difficult to describe it in normal speech because very often there's no equivalent how do you describe a sound what does fat mean what does dark mean what does bright mean when you're talking about a sound so you have to encourage people musicians to use their imagination and I suspect also uh, the audience would respond to that sort of treatment as well. I think it's very important to, to, get, to, get, the, to get the language. The subjectivity of language in, dis, in describing sonority is, uh, as you say, a complete open, open topic. The idea of bright and dark means completely different things, and not just to a trained as opposed to an untrained listener, but within even an orchestral environment of two people playing the same instrument, their conception of how what they would define as bright and what they define as dark is very different. That's right. So you and I both play bass clef instruments, and we generally work in a in a milieu where an expectation that a quote-unquote dark sound is a sound that works well in an orchestra, we have to first of all agree on what that means. What is a dark sound? Here's where our conversation can get deep and interesting. So let's let's follow this through. The problem with darkness on a, in, in an orchestral instrument, especially one that has a lower tessitura or a lower range, is that the, the ear of the audience, as in the simple biology of human hearing, is such as that we don't have a linear uh, way of hearing. That the higher the frequency the louder the experience of sound is. So if, you, if you're playing a musical instrument and you don't have a lot of energy in the upper frequencies of your sound, you have less projection. So out of this comes a very difficult paradox for those of us who are attempting to play instruments in a, quote, dark manner, a manner which allows us to, quote, blend, and yet also we have to earn our living by being heard. So that puts us in a conundrum, first of all, understanding the mechanics, the acoustical physics, if you will, as they're experienced through empirical processes, uh, and somehow integrating this knowledge of what it takes to project a sound with our basic aesthetics of wanting to sound mellow and friendly. No one's going to believe that we haven't rehearsed this chat because you've just basically opened the question of the program I want to do with you and Joel down the road about basses and how we produce the sound. It's very important, as you say, to project the sound. And I want to talk about how bass instruments do that, both by providing sonority and by providing clarity and by providing rhythm. So the support for the orchestra is not just a simple matter of sound or darkness of sound, it's also a matter of how the, how the harmony is set up by that kind of sound. Mm -hmm. There's also the problem, of course, of which hall you're playing in. Some halls are very bass unfriendly, like the one that we play in, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's necessary for us to modify our, our equipment and so forth. So that's one of the things I want to talk about down the road. I think it's a huge question, and it's one thing that uh, musicians have to learn because... As you say, when you're playing with a dark sound, it sounds great five feet away, but 50 feet away, it's uh, inaudible. One of the things we can do in uh, using technology like a podcast is we can demonstrate for our listeners. So here's an idea. As you say, this is an unrehearsed conversation. But what we're going to do with post-production on this show before it gets posted to the NAC website is we're going to have our, our audio engineer, Martin Jones, do a little experiment. 
So here's an experiment that Martin can do in, in the studio, and we'll do it in real time, and by the time our listeners hear this, they will understand what I'm getting at. Here is what I define as a dark sound. I'm going to speak now, and as I'm talking, in a post-production environment, our engineer is going to do something which we call equalizing. And what he's going to do as, we, as I speak here is he's going to move from what, what is a sound where the upper harmonic components, the upper frequencies of my voice, are electronically suppressed. So as I'm speaking now, he's going to alter my sound to take all of the sibilants and the sounds and all the explosive and fricative sounds of my voice, and he's going to reduce them by manipulating digitally the upper frequencies of sound. So for example, if he rolls off or reduces uh, the energy above, say, 5,000 cycles per second, my sound my voice becomes increasingly garbled and muffled. And anyone with hearing problems is going to have greater trouble uh, distinguishing the words that I say. But as I continue to talk now, and and Martin continues in post-production to alter the quality of sound and to start to artificially boost the upper partials, you can hear how the increase in higher frequency components makes my voice much clearer and brighter in sound. So perhaps that's a good good groundwork as we play around with a digital signal here. As an example of what you as a tuba player and what I as a bassoon player have to do with our embouchures, our air, and our sound production in order to select certain qualities of sound which will either enhance our projection or s- diminish our projection. He can do all that? He just did. <laughs> So you're a technical whiz. No, I've just observed a lot of good <laughs> technical wizardry. But it's interesting. I, I think all orchestral musicians, even if they have not had explicit training in acoustical physics, are, of course, master manipulators of, of the basic rules that go on. Because simply, you don't develop an ability to have a successful sound, which is at the basis of everything we do, without learning how to select and voice your instrument in such a way as to deliver a good balance between the fundamental frequency of the note that you're playing and its entire harmonic component. It's not just a matter of playing your instrument. It's a matter of playing your instrument in a room. So really you're playing the room. In a hall like ours that's fairly bass unfriendly, you still have to produce quite a bit of sound in the bottom end. Otherwise, there's no weight in the sound at all. But you also have to produce a lot of sound or clarity uh, particularly the articulation. Otherwise, again, the sound will be so muffled, it'll just get swallowed up in the general sound of the basses and the bass drum and the tempi and everything else. The problem can be easily measured by any of our listeners who have an experience of singing in a, in a bathroom with tile floors and tile walls where there's an echo and it's very easy to get a flattering sound if you're singing in the shower. Sure. And, and it's, there are certain stages that have that feel and that response. But again, they are non-linear, and that's a fancy word meaning that the response is not the same at, at the bottom end as at the top end, so that s- sometimes instruments in the mid-range might lose out or instruments at the top may lose out of that nice resonant singing in the shower sound. That's right. It's the same as when you have a cold. Your vocal cords get all clogged up and you can sing lower than Methuselah, you know, 
Get these incredibly dark, deep sounds. Now, <laughs> of course, when you have a cold, uh, not only is the production uh, altered, but one's hearing is somewhat biased. And uh, one of the problems for us baby boomers, especially baby boomer musicians who have spent thousands of hours on stage in often loud environments, and especially those baby boomers like you and me, Nick, who are men who are genetically somewhat uh, more predisposed to hearing loss than, than women of our age, we all know that we have measurable roll-off in, in the sensitivity of our, of our hearing in, in higher frequencies. Many of our listeners will know this through experience, but may, perhaps our younger listeners don't know that there are many sounds that they will hear at age 20 that they will very likely not be able to hear at age 60 just through the natural aging process. The reduction in the flexibility within the, within the cochlea and the human ear. Um, but the way that that people adapt, of course, nowadays with technology is to have a better and better hearing aids. And in a sense, that is exactly what many modern theaters do through sound enhancement systems. They create a kind of an external hearing aid for the audience as a, as a general, not to compensate for the hearing loss of, the, of each member of the audience, but to compensate for the fact that the hall itself is often not the best vehicle for delivering what is produced on stage out into the space where the 2,500 people are sitting. So here at the National Arts Center, for example, we have had for a number of years a very sophisticated sound enhancement system, which hopefully is not noticeable, but its absence would be sorely noted. Absolutely, like conga drums in a big band. Yeah, that's when, right. When they stop playing, you know something's missing. Well, you know they say when the drums stop, you have to watch out because here comes the viola solo. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I mean, the analogy that I think of is when someone tells a story or, or gives us a brief message to someone who then passes it on to somebody else who then passes it on to somebody else and it becomes changed mm -hmm. the same thing could be said of what actually happens at a concert we sit on a stage and we hear something we hear our sounds we hear the balance and the blend that we hear on the stage you go into the hall you hear something completely different I often ask people after concerts how did it sound oh it sounded great oh it sounded bad or couldn't hear you or you were too loud or something stuck out, mm -hmm. sounded fine to me on stage. Mm -hmm. Then you have, of course, the recording. Um, many recording engineers uh, have never actually heard a live orchestra, and they're so concerned, of, often just with getting all the sounds in there, that they completely forget about blend and what orchestras really sound like. So we have all these versions of the truth that we have to sort of deal with. That's why it's always so valuable to, uh, you know, I remember doing a talk a few years ago, a couple of years ago, and telling people that this is not a good hall. People think this is a very good hall. I said, no, it's not a very good hall at all. If you came and sat on the stage, you'd be amazed at how loudly we're playing, how much sound we're producing on the stage. And yet you go out into the hall and it doesn't sound loud at all. It just sounds okay. So we have all these versions of the truth that we have to deal with both as audience members and as music, if you like, producers. What are we trying to, what kind of a message are we trying to send? What kind of a sound are we trying to transmit that's going to be roughly the same versions from both us and from our listeners. And then the same thing, of course, goes for recordings. You can have five or six recordings of the same piece and they all sound completely different. I remember actually last year going to a master class given by the Chicago Symphony tuba player, Gene Picorni. He played a recording of the Bartok uh, Concerto for Orchestra, the chorale, the brass chorale, and he invited people to uh, comment on it. So no one wanted to say anything, of course. So I piped up and I said, the tuba's way too loud which of course is heresy, 
But that's the way the uh, that's the way the EQ was balanced. It was tons of tuba. There's also tons of trumpet. And he said the recording engineers in Chicago they loved the sound of Mr. Herseth, and they liked to hear lots of tuba. So that's the way things are weighted. Now we both know that when you listen to the orchestra in the hall, the brass is balance is fantastic. You can hear everyone as plain as day, but no one is privileged over the other because they've, they've figured out the balance between them. They don't need any sort of electronic aids to make them sound good, and yet people still try to do it. It's very frustrating, don't you think? <laughs> I do. Well, we've opened up a Pandora's box. All of these variables, the variables of how we experience our own sound, how we describe our own sound, how we uh, transmit our own sound to our immediate colleagues within the orchestra, and then, of course, the very, very difficult process of engaging a large audience in that process. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting and ongoing challenge f for all of us. The thing that strikes me is that people... I mean, even people like us, who were experts in, in certain fields and we know very little about other fields, I think most people are curious about how things work. They like to hear things, they like to see things, but it's much more interesting if they understand exactly what's going on. It's like looking at a painting, for instance, a Renaissance painting, without understanding the message behind it or the theory or the philosophy or the religion or whatever, the Neoplatonism, if you like, behind it, what message is being sent here. And... You know, if you go to an art gallery and you put the headphones on and you listen to the talk, it makes the whole, ex the whole experience is so much more interesting. Whereas we can all look at a painting and enjoy it without understanding it. People say, I like art, but I don't understand it. But I know what I like. So the problem here is that you can't do a play-by-play -play of a Beethoven symphony. No, you can't. It, not in real time. But you so can that explain. Means, that means the explanation has to be done uh, either in advance of the concert or after the concert, uh, either verbally or in some sort of, of, of written form, which is why we have program notes. Uh, th the only thing that comes anywhere close is to having surtitles in operas, where at least the audience is able to read what, what the words are that are being sung. But the problem in, in attempting to, to do this, to, to map things out in that sense, is that we don't really have a instantaneous way way of translating what I was alluding to a few, few minutes ago in the conversation, which is that nexus between the grammar of speech and the grammar of music. It is implied, it is understood, it is intuitive for all of us, and yet it's not something that can ever really be successfully translated into words unless you are willing to go through a very detailed process, as you and I probably do, in our teaching. Let me give you an example. The grammar of how one expresses oneself on an instrument in a, in a phrase is f for an orchestral instrument player who is playing something without text, the, the lack of the text and the implicit pronunciations inherent in the words in any given language means that there is a, mm, I'll say less rigid, but perhaps the term is a less defined and commonality. By that I mean when you are singing words and you speak and pronounce in the conventions of a particular dialect, then there's, it is a com common experience of how we say and hear things in, in, in a language. And when a text is set to music, then there are certain inflections, there are certain phrase directions, there are certain points of emphasis which are understood because they are, the emphasis serves the logic of the grammar of the language being expressed. And yet, 
we don't have this when we play an instrument. So w- w- the next best thing that we can do with with ourselves and with our students is often putting a text to a phrase. But even there, if you say, well, I'm going to say the phrases, and you decide within those three notes, which is the most expressive note? Well, it would de- will depend on a number of things, including the rhythmic context. So you may decide to say that you're saying, what you, what you're saying through the notes is not da-da-da, but beautiful. And as soon as you put a word to those three notes, then there's a commonality of experience because when we speak English, the word beautiful, which has three vowels after the letter B, has an inherent emphasis on the first syllable. So if we decide that in the phrase, ba-ba-ba, is an emulation of the word beautiful, suddenly we have a nexus and an integration with language and music that we didn't have before. So it's highly informative. And I think most trained musicians have come through pedagogies where the association between speech and musical grammar, between the geography of notes in a phrase and where where they become, where where you give emphasis, where you give crescendos, where you give diminuendos, that that context is implicit in how a good musician expresses himself or herself. Well, that's why they call it a phrase. Yes. Because the phrase is made up of words. And in fact, my teacher was very big on using words. I mean, actual English words, mm-hmm. as, as you've just described, yeah. to describe phrases. One word, one word that comes up all the time, if you read someone as impenetrable as Heidegger, for instance, mm-hmm. is the word function. And if you think about the function of each note, or the function of each voice, or the function of whatever that you had to be doing at the time, how the function of it fits in, that's another way of approaching it. Again, it's, the, it's a question of choosing a word that fits what you need to discover or what you need to transmit as a musician. Well, here's, this leads me to comment on something that I've noticed more and more frequently in my own teaching in the last uh, number of years, is when you ask a person in their early 20s nowadays to answer a question like, if we were to place the notes within this phrase within a musical sentence, do you see a subject and a predicate? And the vast majority of at least North American trained students nowadays have no idea what I'm talking about because that expression, some of our listeners will immediately remember being trained in high school with those those ideas. Public school. Public school, but it's no longer used. Mm-hmm. But very often the idea of a subject and predicate. Okay, but we still know what nouns and verbs are. But I, I think it's very interesting that um, along with the tremendous change to language that has occurred through things like email and especially through Twitter and, and, all, and, and all the shorthand which, which substitutes now for more cohesive, structured, written, written uh, conversation, uh, uh, along with that, the, the, I think that there is a, you know, this, a, a loss of an understanding of, of how to build things in, in grammar through knowledge 
and there becomes increasingly reliant just upon experience and intuition. Well, now, of course, not to sound too highfalutin, we all learn language just through experience. It's it's built into our genes to learn language in the first two or three years of our lives and, and never having to have the idea of a subject and predicate expressed. But at some point in our education, when we want to become more facile as writers and speakers, the study of grammar is usually extremely helpful. And I would imagine there would be very few professional writers who would not agree with that, at least those who write in common prose. Out of this comes the problem of, does the lack of training in traditional viewpoints of grammar have an effect on the ability of a young musician to organize his or her thinking about expression of a phrase? Well, I think it works both ways. Um, I've had this argument with a friend of mine who teaches ESL, and he claims, and the evidence supports it, that the best way to learn a language is just to speak the language, never mind grammar. The grammar comes later. I personally am of the opposite opinion. I've always found it easier to learn a language by starting with a grammar because that's the way we were taught back in the 60s, to speak French and German and Latin. The grammar was very, it was, it was to the fore, the same as it was for English. On the other hand, you have these, for instance, people like Charlie Parker, one of the best saxophone players of all time, great musicians of all time, who probably didn't worry too much about grammar. He, it was instinctive. I think some people have the instinct to make a phrase. Some people have the instinct to do whatever it takes musically to make it work. And I think, obviously, that's as important as, as the grammar side. I, I agree with you, absolutely. When you're teaching... Sometimes you have to say, okay, this is how it works. This is how we build a phrase and then go to town. You do it. You, you have to, it's like tradition in the individual talent, you know, T.S. Eliot's essay about literature. We're adding to something that's already happening. We're not really originating very much. And if we do originate something, it's not really that original. We might be just adding a small little shoot to a large branch. So what we have to do, we have to learn the tradition in order to unlearn it the same way as painters learn how to paint and then they start throwing paint on the wall and that's that's their that's their voice or that's their that's their approach mm. i think that it's important to to learn the grammar obviously i'm i'm big on that but i think the instinctive side is sometimes overlooked i agree completely and of course you cannot build an orchestra out of 80 charlie parkers no even though any one of them is a gift a gift from on high the putting them together and coming up with a cohesive vision demands uh a commonality of expression. And indeed, orchestral musicians, whether we're discussing color and darkness and brightness or overt or understated expression within within a phrase in a solo in an orchestra, we're still having to base, uh, base our decision-making upon a certain common, commonalities that we have to agree on. You cannot play a tuba solo in a um, in a 20th century repertoire piece and without paying strict attention to the rhythmic and uh, tuning environment in which you're playing you you simply have to stay within certain parameters and one of the hardest things for classical musicians is learning how to integrate the tremendous heart and the fire in the belly that they have to express themselves, how to integrate that and to put it, channel it into just enough individuality that they become, quote, artists instead of just painters. It's like being a juggler, I think. When you're playing in an an ensemble, even a small ensemble, 
what's difficult is it's, it's like having a conversation where you're speaking and listening at the same time. You're not waiting for a response. You're actually taking part simultaneously. So that's why we have to have such big ears. You know, we have to listen to each other across the, the stage, fit into what's going on, and still add our individual voice, which also fits in and creates something larger so that the, the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. So it's a combination of these factors, I think. It's, uh, the, nothing, nothing happens in a vacuum in music, that's for sure. No. And the only thing that happens in this vacuum is that the chair that I'm sitting in is about to be em emptied, and I can't think of a, a better choice to replace me in this role hosting this NACOCAST than you, Nick Atkinson. So I'll coach you now just how to, how you end this show. You have to say thank you for listening to the NACOCAST, and you have to say something about listening next time, and you have to say something about our website. So take it away, Nick. Well, thanks, Chris. It's a tough act to follow. 